Before we get rolling, check out the NPR One app to listen to this podcast and so many others. It is a great way to find new shows and stories. And NPR One will hand curate what you like and give you more. Find NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. I am very happy to announce that in just a few days, we can stop saying the word presumptive, which is very good for me because that's a hard word for me to say. (laughs) Anyways, Donald Trump will officially accept the GOP presidential nomination. Next week, we'll preview the GOP convention in Cleveland. We will talk about party platforms. What are they anyway? And do they actually matter? And of course, we'll end the show with listener mail and can't let it go. When we all share one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So it is 2.02 p.m. in no, the studio right now. it's actually not. 2.07. It's 2.07, Sam. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it's two minutes after <laughs> it's five. It's been a day. Yeah. It's been a day. You know, clocks were really, really hard for me in kindergarten. <laughs> five plus two. <laughs> Anyways, it's a bit after 2 p.m. Uh, and here in our news building in Washington, D.C., the whole town is just lit. With the only thing anyone's talking about right now, which of course, yes, which of course is Pokemon Go. I don't understand that game. JK, JK, LOL. You know how many people have run into us at the Washington? People you never see. We are not catching them all. We are not. I have seen too many Pokemon Go think piece headlines for my own good. So we're not. What I meant to say is everyone's talking about Trump's VP pick. I changed my name to Pikachu. There is a rumor that Trump's VP could be Pikachu. So we're going to talk about uh, Trump's VP pick in just a second. But first, if you missed this week's episode on the Bernie Sanders endorsement of Hillary Clinton or the president's speech in Dallas, go check that out. Though we'll talk a bit more about both of those things in this episode as well. And we should also say hi to new listeners we might have. Hi, new listeners. up? (laughs) Thanks for listening. Yeah. Anyway, let me just tell you guys briefly how this show works. So, Thursday evening, we post a roundup of the week's political news. Four of us sit here and just talk, talk, talk about it. We also do quicker episodes and whenever there's big news, like Dallas last week. Sometimes we also post longer NPR features to the podcast feed, like an audio documentary called Obama's Years. That's a few episodes back. And sometimes we just talk about fun stuff, like politics and musicals. That's a great episode from a few weeks ago, if you're new to the show. But next week, for the first time, we are doing daily episodes from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio. Those will start Tuesday, July 19th. I will be hosting with a Motley crew of my colleagues all up in Cleveland. Did you do Motley Crew because of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is there. Sam's like, what group is that? I know who Motley Crew is. (laughs) They have the little two umblat dots on one of their letters. Okay. Anyways, (laughs) new listeners, thank you for listening. Let's start with this VP news. Lots of chatter and reporting and mixed messages about whether it's going to be Indiana Governor Mike Pence. I don't know what we know at this point. Who knows what we know? Sarah? Okay. So, you know, it's funny because Domenico, you you know, if I can pull back the curtain a little bit, Domenico sent us an email late last night saying, get ready for the rumor mill and the single sourcing and the unvetted reports because, you know. I think I called it the mess of unverified speculation or something. Yes. Yeah. Because that's, ex- and that's, that's ex- what it is. exactly what's going on. I mean, we all know Trump tweeted uh, late Wednesday night that he was going to announce his VP pick on Friday morning at 11 in Manhattan. And, you know, of course, all the speculation has been going on for weeks, but it just, you know, 
doubles and triples exponentially at that point. So the reports now today are saying it's Mike Pence, Indiana governor. And the short answer is we don't know that. We don't have that confirmed. But his home paper, Indianapolis Star, says it's him. Uh, we shall see. Yeah, so, the, uh, the Trump campaign is saying that they're not confirming it at this point. They're trying to build buzz. This is what happens, right? They, they, Donald Trump says he's going to announce it in New York at 11 a.m. on Friday. I mean, the, the thing about this, it's like this is my least favorite day of the entire presidential campaign cycle. Every four that years. That is a big, bold statement. Oh, my goodness. But it is, this is, this is, <laughs> every four years this happens because, and I get it. Look, people are interested in personalities. They're interested in the characters. It's a very, like, house of cards, you know. And this um, time, very, like, apprentice style. Like, the way it, that it feels different. It feels like, you know, candidates time. flying in, and we had Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr. vetting these possible yeah, but vice I can presidential tell you, candidates. I can tell you that it's not much different. Because, like, in 08, we were tailing flight numbers, flight tails, and, like, watching it on flight track and seeing, you know, we knew it was going to be Joe Biden, we thought, because it had moved and we had him staked out at his house in Wilmington. The frenzy that happens every four years around this, it so outstrips the, the like, importance. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the he... vice presidential candidate doesn't really make or break a candidate. Well, it could break him, I suppose, it can but it can't really make them. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's just so comical, all this focus. Because in reality, like Trump is the main man on stage here. And Trump Nobody is not going to be a person him. who will who will even let a VP like tell him what to do. So it's, it's not like the Trump campaign changes drastically whoever he picks. Right. No, definitely not. I yeah. mean, in fact, the, the the funny thing is that, you know, you have to build this campaign apparatus around a vice presidential pick. So you're going to have somebody who's going to sign on who's not going to have much support from the Trump campaign. So this is about the biggest day they're going to get today, tomorrow and their speech yeah. at the campaign, as long as they don't screw up. And we've seen other vice presidential candidates mess up. And that's something they want to avoid because you have to really search pretty hard to find a vice presidential pick who's moved the electorate and brought states on board in a big way since uh, going back to LBJ when he was picked for John F. Kennedy's ticket. So, Asma, what do we know about Mike Pence? You're from his state? Indiana. Tell us about him a bit. So he's the governor. He's a Republican governor of a fairly solidly Republican state. Uh, It did go for Obama in 2008, but otherwise it's fairly conservative. Um, and, and what I think is interesting about Mike Pence, though, is he's a very polarizing figure in the state. I was just telling Sarah, you know, you can go around parts of Indiana and you will see signs in people's yards that say Pence must go. They're not calling for a competitor. They're just saying Pence must go because there's such a movement uh, among some corners of the state to get rid of him as governor. And part of that is because of RIFRA, this Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You might remember it was this bill that was would essentially sort of allow businesses to potentially like not serve um, gay or lesbian couples if they felt that it was not in their religious or that it violated their religious And so there was a big blowback to that, right? There was. And what I think is so interesting is because of that, I think he's very, very polarizing in the state in ways that other previous Republican elected officials haven't been. So the guy right before him, uh, very popular governor, Mitch Daniels, he's now the head at Purdue University. I mean, I know people who told me that they voted for President Obama and then they voted for Mitch Daniels. That party splitting ticket seemed normal with a guy like Mitch Daniels, way more establishment, business friendly. 
not at all Mike Pence. Pence. He's very socially conservative and I would say very polarizing in the state. You know, I was in Indiana this week. Uh, Mike Pence was campaigning with Donald Trump. And in talking to people, I heard kind of mixed reviews of Pence. It was kind of like, and these were, you know, Republican voters at the Trump rally. They were kind of like, yeah, he's, you know, he's good. Uh, I heard sort of a little more enthusiasm from one particular woman about Mitch Daniels. She said, you know, he gave, he handed Pence. I think that might be the first time anyone's used enthusiasm (laughs) and Mitch Daniels in the same sentence. They love him in Indiana, though. (laughs) Yeah. And she said he'd given Pence a really good economy to walk into. And, you know, Pence takes a lot of credit for that. And, but, you know, I guess it's debatable how much of that is his doing and versus, you know, Daniel's doing. But um, I did see those signs that, you know, Pence must go signs. And um, I think the other thing we should mention and just to watch out for with Pence is in addition to the religious freedom issue is abortion. He also supported uh, abortion restrictions in Indiana that got a lot of blowback, both in Indiana and across the nation. In fact, there was a social media campaign some of you might have seen called uh, hashtag periods for Pence, Mm -hmm. where basically women were posting on his Facebook and tweeting to him on Twitter and calling into the office and telling Pence, you know, asking questions about their periods, about their birth control. The whole point being, you know, from these women's point of view, if Pence wants to be involved in our reproductive life, we're going to involve him in our reproductive life. And that's something that's, you know, especially if, you know, with Trump up against a female Democratic nominee, that's an issue that's likely to come back. But guys, we should point out that this is probably a good pick for Donald Trump. Because this guy knows D.C. But all of not only that, but all of these things we're talking about heading into the Republican convention. The biggest thing Donald Trump needs to do is shore up the conservative base. There's been all this talk of disunity. This pick is somebody who, you know, reassures conservatives, uh, is somebody who religious conservatives can get behind, someone who a lot of establishment Republicans can get behind because he was a a member of the House for 12 years before he went off and ran for governor of Indiana. So it's somebody who is also very different tonally than Donald Trump. You know, he's not bombastic. He's very low key. um, And I think that that's something that a lot of Republican insiders are hopeful. We're we're hopeful before this that he would pick someone like Pence, uh, unlike Gingrich, unlike Chris Christie, because he's so uh, level headed and even keeled. Here is my prediction. It's all a head fake. Trump's going to surprise us. I wouldn't be surprised if it is Omarosa. Well, and that's that's something to uh, there are a couple things about that, right? In 2000, Dick Cheney was selected as the vice president when he was pick, in charge of the committee to pick the was, vice president. Exactly. He was the chief vetter, <laughs> all right? And a cautionary tale for all the people who want to get this out first. In 2004, you might remember the New York Post cover that said Kerry picks Gephardt. I don't remember that one. All right? And it was not him. Does anybody in the room remember who it was? Come on. Kerry oh. picked. Kerry picked. Now you're God. Pick? Who did he pick? I'll tell you this. He no, paid, on, he paid $400 for a haircut in 2000. John oh, Edwards. Edwards. You got it. Slick hair Edwards. Anyways, we have you know, to move on. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> Can I say one thing about yes. this? I, I mean, by the time a lot of people hear this podcast, they'll already know the decision will be out. Okay. Uh, and I just think this whole episode is just, it's indicative of presidential politics, sure. But I think it's also indicative of how Trump deals with the press, right? Because everybody is running around in circles speculating about this today. And, you know, the other night, Trump, he didn't send out a press release. He tweeted the time and approximate location of where he's going to make this announcement. And his underlings are continuing to tweet out, we're still making up our minds. You know, and so we're continuing to run around in circles and speculate. And the, the bottom line is Trump will 
put out the information the way he wants to do it, when he wants when to he do wants it. it. Yeah. And, 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 and yet he'll, you know, he'll And he's probably... a master media manipulator. Yes. The way that political Twitter was up in a frenzy about Pence today was the same way that, like, the Beehive was waiting for the new Beyonce album. Just, like, <laughs> every little tidbit was like, oh, what does it mean? What does it mean? analogy. It was so frenzied. Anyway, if Trump does not pick Mike Pence... Two other names that are up in the mix are Newt Gingrich and Chris Christie. What are they about? Well, I think a big thing is, is whether or not he gets along with these folks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Christie and Gingrich make sense in that way because they're so similar to Trump. So Christie, you know, is a Northeastern Republican. The only people who are kind of in favor of Chris Christie or where he has a positive favorability rating is among Republicans in the Northeast. And so when you look at Chris Christie and Newt Gingrich, both of them have flaws uh, that are potentially problematic for Donald Trump. But again, it's about how you get along with someone. Well, we all get along really well. (laughs) All right, enough of this VP stuff. Let us talk about the conventions. As we said, there'll be daily episodes for you beginning July 19th from the GOP convention in Cleveland. Um, What can people expect to be hearing about and reading about? What stuff will we be talking about when this thing kicks off next week? Well, a lot of it's just lead up to the big night at the end when Trump and his VP give their speeches, right? So... There's a whole list of speakers that the Trump campaign finally just put out. And it's kind of, a, I mean, usually this is an opportunity for sort of rising stars in the Republican Party to, to showcase themselves. And even, you know, some smaller time, you know, local officials uh, who are who are Republicans to get up and kind of have their moment in the spotlight. But on that note, though, aren't a lot of big names not coming this year? But right. But this is different. I mean, really, only a relatively small number of elected officials like House Speaker Paul Ryan will be there. Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell will be there. Yeah, and there's and a whole Johnny, remember him? Yeah, there's a whole oh, host yeah. of senators uh, like Joni Ernst and Tom Cotton. But like Nikki Haley is not going. Former presidents are not going. Like there's some folks that aren't going because of Trump, right? Well, that's true. Yeah, right. That, I mean, the Bushes won't be there. The Romney John won't be McCain, there. Mitt Romney. I mean, it's pretty significant that the last two uh, nominees for the party won't be there, uh, that the Bushes won't be there. I mean, Donald Trump has been very critical of George W. Bush. So there's a lot of folks that won't and, be there. And frankly, you know, there are fewer Republican elected officials than in 2012. And if you look at the other side of this list, the sort of entertainment side of the people he's got going. Let's run through really this list for a bit. So we've all seen the list of speakers mm-hmm. now. It is uh, it is an interesting assortment. Who can talk us through that? I mean, there's some sports celebrities. So you've got Tim Tebow is on there. You know, he's the... is he like a former sports celebrity? Okay, he fine, couldn't fine, even fine, make fine. it in the oh NFL. God, but let me stop. <laughs> but then there's also um, you know sort of past political leaders. So Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, who uh, also ran for president, he's going to be speaking. And then I don't have the full. Well, well some of got... his former rivals, you know, like uh, Mike Huckabee, will be speaking. You also have Natalie Gulbis, who's a professional golfer. Okay, she'll be speaking there as well. Um, you know. So my question with this list, it's kind of like have establishment-ish and half like figures from pop culture and celebrities. And a lot of Trump family members. So does this mean that the convention is going to be half of the GOP's operation and half of a Trump production? Like who wins? I mean, it seems more Trump. Like thematically, is this a Trump production or a GOP production? Well, I mean, they've had, so the Republican National Convention staff has had, I mean, they've had people on the ground in Cleveland for a year or so and have, you know, staffed up more heavily recently. But they've been preparing for this for a long time before there was a nominee. And so they kind of have to go in and be laying the groundwork, not knowing exactly like whose party they're throwing. And in fact, the list was just released, you know, pretty late in the game here. There were reports that he had trouble, you know, getting people to speak. So, you know, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall inside of the convention staff, you know, the last few weeks. And just I have to to imagine that they are just 
wringing their hands a yeah. little bit. So so that's who's going to be talking. But in terms of what they'll be talking about, you know, the New York Times is is reporting out that it looks like there could be some theme nights at Monday night, could be Benghazi night. Benghazi night. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there'll be a focus on Bill Clinton's sexual misconduct. So just a lot of issues that are sure to fire up the party base. I mean, that seems to be the point if these are the themes. Yeah. You know, so also the goal of a party convention is to officially and formally declare the nominee and for that nominee to present to the party and the country their vision for the party. And that is formally outlined in the party's platform, which has been finalized. What do we know about this year's GOP platform? It seems as if some of the planks of it don't actually line up with Donald Trump's personal views. Well, there have been been some battles over a number of issues, as there often are. I mean, this is one of those things that, like, to the really staunch party loyalists, issues like abortion, same-sex marriage are really important. To the, you know, the general public, I'm not sure how much people pay that much attention to platform fights. But it is kind of a, you know, it can be a power struggle within the party. It can be indicative of of sort of who's calling the shots. Um, I believe the Trump campaign did put out a release this week saying that, you know, Trump's stamp was on the party platform. Um, it also reflects a party's priorities. I mean, you know, the, it doesn't necessarily mean what what the candidate is going to necessarily do, but it's what the party stands for. This time in the platform, there was a bit of a tussle over language around the LGBT community. So Brian Naylor, so NPR's Brian Naylor reported that four years ago, the platform had called for state court decisions legalizing same-sex marriage. They called them, quote, an assault on the foundations of our society. You know, the Supreme Court, though, of course, has weighed in and legalized same-sex marriage nationally. Um, And the platform this time around calls, says that children, quote, deserve a married mom and dad and refers to, quote, natural marriage as between a man and a woman. And that's the language that offended gays and lesbians that were there. So uh, Rachel Hoff, who is a delegate from Washington, D.C., is the first openly gay member of the platform committee. And she said that uh, she thinks that the Republican Party is alienating the LGBT community who might consider voting Republican. I certainly um, think that we're, we're alienating and turning away the LGBT community who, 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 who may consider voting Republican. We're um, certainly alienating members of the Republican Party who are in the LGBT community and, and bravely out in that way. But we're also alienating young voters. Right. And that's an important point, because this is not just about, you know, lesbians and gays, transgender uh, members of the community. This is about younger people who, for them, the fight over uh, acceptance and tolerance and all that stuff, like that's not an issue. Even among, by the way, younger Republicans, this is not something that they don't want to be part of a party they don't see as accepting. And a lot of the energy in the Republican Party, uh, the younger side of the Republican Party, is very libertarian. And so, you know, as I was traveling the country during the primary process, talking to a lot of Republicans, that's something I heard fairly often was just kind of like, either they're pro-gay rights or a lot of times it's just sort of like, well, let's just stay out of it. You know, like let whoever wants to get married, get married. We need to move on from that. But I think, you know, the sort of older baby boomer social conservatives that used to really control the party, they don't feel that way. And, and, who, still, and who still controlled the party, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, rank and file is different than even the people who are writing the rules to the platform. But bigger question, though, does the platform ever really matter? Again, it matters. It matters to the activists. I mean, it it it's, it validates with you know the things that they care about that they fight for in the midterms. In but the will years. the average Joe voter go into the booth this November thinking about the platform as he casts? Maybe his vote? not, but right. But it's optics, and I think that it certainly doesn't help the Republican Party in terms of outreach to younger voters. But it helps get the base, right? 
It helps get the base, but there's a limited number of the base. Gotcha. So the week after this is the Democratic convention, so we should briefly chat about that. What do we know about that? Well, also, side note, we're doing daily episodes from there, too. It's it's not, you know, it, we already know that Hillary Clinton's the nominee. We have Bernie She's Sanders. She's been endorsed by yeah, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has endorsed her. But still, there is some talk about a possible fight over superdelegates. Super and so, yeah, I think we'll have to see how that pans out. You know, I think that polls seem to indicate that a number of Bernie Sanders supporters are beginning to warm up to Hillary Clinton, but not all of them are. I mean, I've met folks who are still yeah, very lukewarm or not sure, or potentially going to sit out the election. But aren't the numbers around where Bernie supporters are now a little better than where Obama was with Hillary Clinton Puma's in 08? And you should no doubt note that Puma stands for party unity my blank. Yes. So, Apple. But like right now, you know, like Clinton's doing better... <laughs> Clinton is doing better with getting those Bernie folks yeah, at this come, point than Obama was with Clinton supporters. Uh, yeah, they've come around more so. Uh, and what polls have shown, something like 80% of Sanders supporters supporting Hillary Clinton. Uh, she probably would like it to be a little bit higher of than course. that. Uh, and that could mean a couple points in the polls, and that's not insignificant. It could be millions of votes. I mean, at this point, too, though, I, I think that we'd be remiss to kind of acknowledge that in some ways I think that this of that this is kind of going to be a celebration. I mean, look, this is the first woman that we will have be the leader or the ticket, you know, to lead a major party. And and she will be celebrated and be sort of like designated in that role come Philadelphia. That has never happened before. And I believe that like her party base supports her in ways that the RNC doesn't really seem entirely always on board with Donald Trump. But she's been the first woman nominee since she became the presumptive nominee. And there wasn't there was a muted excitement then. I feel like this entire election, the historical nature of what Hillary Clinton could be was never acknowledged as much as it was for for our last president, yeah, but our that, current president. That said, we're going to have two competing events, essentially. The Republican camp- convention that's going to go the week before and the Democratic convention, they get to have the last word and they're going to be responding to what you heard mm-hmm. at the Republican convention. In a way, it's a big advantage for Democrats because they're going to be sitting there and talking about everything point by point you know, that they see as darkness from the Republican Party and be able to have be a counterpoint to that at their convention a week later. It's a great last word. All right, time for a quick break. When we get back, we will talk a bit about the president's visit to Dallas this week. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Okay, we are back. Uh, In the wake of Dallas last week, something interesting happened on the floor of the Senate. Uh, Tim Scott has been giving speeches all week. Uh, He's a black GOP senator from South Carolina. The only black Republican in the Senate. Yeah, yeah. And he was on the floor of the Senate, and he talked really openly and candidly about race. I recall walking into an office building just last year after being here for five years on the Capitol. And the officer looked at me with a little attitude and said, the pen I know 
You, I don't. Show me your ID. Yeah, so the pin that he's talking about is every person in the House and Senate has a pin that they wear on on their um, lapel to show that they belong there and that gets them entrance, right? I'll tell you, I was thinking to myself, either he thinks I'm committing a crime impersonating a member of Congress or, or what? Well, I'll tell you that later that evening, I received a phone call from a supervisor apologizing for the behavior. Uh, Mr. President, that is at least the third phone call that I've received from a supervisor or the chief of police since I've been in the Senate. And so elsewhere in that speech, he says that in his last year, being a U.S. senator, he's been stopped by police seven times for reasons that he thinks are pretty arbitrary. Um, Driving a nice car, for instance. Exactly. And so... I think what he was trying to do with this speech is to say it's not just a thing that black people over there are experiencing. It's someone as powerful and as prominent as him can experience, too. Or that they're or that they're making up. I think he was also trying to, like, depoliticize the racial conversation in some ways, because, look, he is a black Republican senator from South Carolina. And he's saying it happens to me, too. It's not just Democrats who are complaining, because I do think a lot of times, even in the Twitterverse, you see that the race and the politics of this conversation get wrapped up into one. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of things that that white people just don't see because they don't experience it. I mean, you don't get stopped that often as a white person. You don't get stopped seven times in a year. You know, I think for white people who have not had this experience, who cannot identify with it, when they hear those talking points coming from people on the left, it, it can be easy to sort of dismiss it as this is, as you were saying, Sam, something that those people are saying. But for someone like Tim Scott, a Republican Christian conservative Tea Party from conservative. South Carolina, Tea Party conservative. He's on their team. He's on their side. But he's black and he's had a different life experience because of it. For him to stand up and say that, I think it's very it's a very powerful statement to make. Yeah. And and like what I've noticed in the aftermath of these shootings in Dallas last week, I've seen the conversation kind of get cracked open. You've seen conservatives like Newt Gingrich speak very openly about race. And from what I'm seeing and hearing as someone who follows this conversation a lot, Something about it feels different now. What's interesting to me about the Dallas shootings is that it didn't just become a conversation about police. I mean, I feel like it hasn't been lost. The fact that that day you had people like Newt Gingrich saying that white people don't understand what it's like to be black in America. You had Donald Trump mentioning Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. Those were tragedies. Right. So it was recognized as not just a moment about what happened in Dallas, but something broader in the country as people were trying to keep a lid on something they thought could be potentially dangerous. And, you know, this week also, uh, the president came back to Washington after he was in Dallas for that service. And he he had a very long four and a half hour meeting yesterday with leaders from Black Lives Matters and others, right? I mean, there were police chiefs, mayors, and from the write-up that I read, which was really amazing in the Washington Post, they said that there were kind of seating assignments. So you would have a black activist sitting adjacent to a police chief uh, next to a mayor. And, And part of that was on purpose so that people would have to engage. And, you know, Obama sort of opened this up and and he spoke in the beginning, but then kind of turned it into the Socratic method and asked people questions. And Hmm. people were turning to each other and asking each other questions. Uh, And and to me, like the length of this meeting is... Indicative. Indicative, exactly. I mean, I, I haven't heard of 
a meeting where the president sits with like community activists and and, and citizens, right, and mayors and whatnot for four plus hours. What do any of these meetings do, though? Like, there's a, there's a summit, there's a gathering, there's a committee, there's a this. Like, do these things push real substantive change? I was thinking about that the other day. It feels kind of top down because it's it's like the president winds up pulling in a lot of leaders, quote unquote, and. You know, does that really filter down to a broader conversation that has to be had between the actual people who are, you know, involved in these things or policing? I mean, and the president kind of tried something like this after Ferguson, too. And I don't know how much came of it. I mean, police chiefs certainly have tried to make a change in a lot of communities. Well, you know, post-Ferguson, Dallas PD made lots of changes. They certainly did. That made their PD kind of become nationally renowned, for, you know, for doing things right. I mean, you're right. Like, how much of this trickles down is a question. Yeah. And I mean, the president, you know, maybe would get credit for some of this uh, early in his presidency. But in his eighth year, a lot of people uh, just kind of shrug their shoulders and move on. And he's going to keep going. Like, he's hosting a town hall tonight on race, led by the president, uh, 8 p.m. Thursday night. It's going to be broadcast, actually, on all Disney-owned networks without commercials. So this is ABC, ESPN, Yahoo. This is really a kind of a full-court press on this. Yeah, I mean, I think this president realizes he still has a bully pulpit, and he doesn't care what the Washington Press Corps thinks. He thinks that the Washington Press Corps has a small view. He's got a long view, and he's saying, I'm going to use my bully pulpit until the very end, whether you like it or not. And I thought, looking at his speech in Dallas, it was the most expansive speech on race that this president has given since his 2008 race race speech speech before he became president. And and as a speechwriter, you know, which he is, it took a certain amount of effort and energy and intent to speak for as long as he did uh, with as much nuance as he did uh, to lean into that moment. That wasn't off the cuff. Um, So before we leave this conversation in Dallas, I was there for a few days covering that story um, and I tweeted about it and shared some thoughts about it. But I want to say the one thing that I found particularly uplifting from my time there, it was such a tragedy, such a tragic space. But I was so pleasantly surprised to see that things on the ground were not as tragic and toxic and divided as they were on Twitter and on social media. I saw a lot of people there coming together of all races and all creeds to start having those conversations and to comfort each other and love each other and grieve together. And I talked to one woman in Dallas and we were talking about the shooting and how I was covering it. And she said, you know, I see both sides. I see the side of Black Lives Matter. I see the side of these police officers. But as soon as you say that you support any one side, everyone thinks you hate the other side. So I just say nothing. And I think what you end up with is the people that are the loudest voices on Twitter are not her. And I am so glad that Twitter is actually not the real world. The real world is the real world. (laughs) And people can actually be pretty decent. Anyway, there's that. To wrap up these Dallas thoughts, we have a listener who uh, left us a recording. He is from Dallas. His name is Misael. He calls it the Big D. Howdy, NPR Politics Squad. I'm writing from Guadalajara at the moment. But my home and my heart is right there in the Big D. Dallas is an amazing place where those of us in the Latino community come together with those in the white, black, Vietnamese, Korean, Indian, and Islamic communities, among all the others that exist. It's just sad how a lone individual can reduce our bonds, our love, and our city to nothing but a hashtag and a few headlines. More than anything, I'm just disappointed 
Not because these events are particularly shocking to me, but because they aren't anymore. <sighs> I don't know, man. It is. We may not speak the same language, practice the same religion, or have the same color of skin. But even so, we share a city, we share a community, and we share a place where the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. God bless and stay safe. Thank you for that. Wow. Yeah. Very well said. Okay. Before we hit the break, a couple loose ends to discuss. The Senate passed a bill aimed at combating opioid addiction this week. They still have to appropriate money to pay for the bill, but the president will sign it. And it looks like an important first step. Democrats and Republicans worked together on it. And this is an issue that affects so many Americans right now, right? Yeah, it's something we hear about, you know, all over the country. It's something that, you know, early on our colleague Tamara Keith was reporting on. And multiple presidential candidates from the beginning have brought this up because it's something that's touching pretty much every community. And it's hit a lot of red and blue states. So I used to cover politics in Massachusetts. It's a very deep blue state. All of the congressional representation are Democrats, but they uh, were forming alliances with Republicans in Indiana and in Kentucky to try to get legislation through because the opioid crisis has hit New England uh, so strongly in ways that it's also hit, you know, some of the Midwestern and Appalachian states. Yeah. All right. Um, Finally, what in the world is up with the RBG this week? She has been popping off (laughs) on one Donald Trump. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, has had some salty words for Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it started with an interview with The New York Times. It was published uh, on Sunday where she said her late husband would have wanted to move to New Zealand if Trump became president, said she couldn't imagine what the country would be like if Trump were elected. Uh, And she got some flack on the right and the left for that, uh, you know, just saying that that's crossing a line. She's a Supreme Court justice. Usually Supreme Court justices, uh, you know, try to be a little more out of politics. And then Trump tweeted at her and said that her mind is, quote, shot, that she should resign. Mm -hmm. Uh, The beef seems to have somewhat ended today. She released a statement that says, quote, on reflection, my recent remarks in response to press inquiries were ill-advised, and I regret making them. Judges should avoid commenting on a candidate for public office. In the future, I will be more circumspect. I mean, clearly the Supreme Court is political, okay? I mean, five, four de- yeah. there's 5-4 decisions all over the place. Uh, you had Antonin Scalia, who used to go duck hunting with Dick Cheney. Um, you know, you've had Supreme Court justices who've run for president. I know in modern times, that's not something that happens, but we have had them go in and become part of politics. And but, his spouses are very politically engaged. Publicly. Absolutely. Clarence, Clarence Thomas's, Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, for example, one of the people who was very involved in the Virginia Tea Party, for example. But, also, but no, but I will say that absolutely this is a line because, you know, a lot of people look at the justices and want them at least to you know, not prejudge what's going to be coming, but hear the case and hear the merits of the case. And what I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg realized is that by doing this, she was taking away that she would have an open mind for whatever would come her way. And that's at least where they're supposed to be. Yeah. All right. One more quick break. We'll be right back with listener mail and can't let it go. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, 
and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to learnvest.com slash nprpolitics. All right, before we get back to the show, if you want to hear some great conversations, check out the best in the business, Terry Gross, and her interview show, Fresh Air. On any given day, you'll hear Questlove tell a story about a ping-pong duel between Prince and Jimmy Fallon. Yes, that happened. You will hear writer Sarah Heppola talk about rethinking her sex life after she quit drinking. You will also hear New Yorker journalist Evan Osnos explain handguns in America and why concealed carry is so popular. Those and other interviews are on the Fresh Air podcast. Get it on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, back to the show. All right, time for some listener mail. Thank you to every one of you who writes us or records a question for us each week. We get way more than we can use here in the podcast, but we really do read and listen to all of it, and we appreciate it, especially those of you guys who sing. Yes, some of you sing. Thank you for that. Sam's just looking for the next Beyonce. <laughs> there is no next Beyonce. Shut up. There is no next Beyonce. <laughs> that is like the next Blessed Sinatra. Well, you know, the Harry Connick Jr. sort of, you know, okay, you triple can A leave. version. Triple you can A version. Leave. It's not the same, but. Hope Floats is the worst movie of all time. It's <laughs> a Harry that? Connick Jr. movie. It's really bad. Oh, that, that, that movie made me cry when I was like. It made me cry because it was something. so bad. This won't make it. Johnny, Johnny <laughs> Mnemonic is the worst movie of all time. I walked out on that. Okay, whatever. Next. Letter from Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We have a letter from Morgan in Portland. She writes, hi, guys. It seems to me everyone, including Domenico last week, says both candidates have terrible numbers. I would argue Trump's negatives are because he's Trump, whereas Hillary's are likely the result of decades of political attacks. Could you guys dissect the potential difference in these numbers? Thanks, Morgan. So Osman and I were talking about this earlier. What stands out to me about Hillary's unfavorables is that they fluctuate over time. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this argument from uh, some other journalists who've said that what's interesting about Hillary Clinton's uh, popularity or unpopularity is it kind of depends what position she's in. Yep. And so when she was at Secretary of State, you know, I think uh, people thought of her as kind of cool. Remember that meme with her on with the, the Blackberry? Yep. Yeah. Now, I, I don't really think cool and Hillary Clinton are Not two words all. that people usually use together. But that being said, I think negatives are negatives. And the idea that Hillary Clinton is is viewed negatively now because of, you know, decades of political attacks. When I talk to voters, that's not what I hear from them. I mean, I've talked to Democrats who have questions about trust. I mean, some of the reasons why she is viewed negatively now did not exist a couple of years ago. And those are largely because of issues with uh, why she had a private email server as Secretary of State and how secretive she seems at times in various, you know, sort of roles as, as a government official. But to the larger question of Trump's unfavorability ratings, I think kind of like Hillary Clinton, he has, you know, a lot of people within his own party who don't like him very much and have big concerns about him. I mean, the concerns are different than the concerns about Hillary Clinton. But, you know, Republicans tell me all the time that they're worried about his temperament, worried about his character. Even many Republicans who say, yes, I'm going to vote for him. So, you know, I think it just comes down to both of these candidates have big potential flaws yeah. and potential liabilities that give voters pause. And we're also just in a really polarized time politically. I think it would be hard for any politician to have particularly high favorables at this moment in our politics. That's also a good point. But I'll say, Morgan, uh, books could be written about either of these candidates and the increase in polarization in this country. And they will Let's, be. <laughs> Stand by. <laughs> Let's hear a recorded question from a listener in Virginia. Hey, my name is Salar Khan, and I'm a 14-year-old from Richmond, Virginia. 
I wanted to know what kind of chance Gary Johnson and maybe even Jill Stein could have of getting into the debates, or at least the larger political discussion. What kind of an impact could Stein and Johnson actually have on Trump and Clinton's votes? Thanks, guys, and I love the podcast. Well, Johnson, thank you, man. So Johnson's doing pretty well in the polls. He's at 12%, pretty close to the 15% that he needs to get into the debates. Um, He, he, he of course, is the Libertarian Party candidate. Yes. Jill Stein's a Green Party candidate. Yes. And because of what we just talked about, because of the unfavorability of the Republican and Democratic nominees, there are a lot of people, or a number of people at least, who are looking for an alternative. Yeah, so Pew found that the dissatisfaction numbers uh, with these candidates is actually similar to 1992, if you can believe that. And 1992, who else came on board but Ross Perot? Also, lest we forget, he got into the race, then left the race, and then got back in again. Well, I mean, the thing is with Ross Perot is that he actually had a message that was pretty clear, and he did it in a really simple way. He had those charts that everyone remembers. He had a ton of money and was able to pay for primetime events to talk about the debt. Okay. If you look at Gary Johnson, what does he believe? What is his actual message? I could probably rattle off 50 things, but that one thing that can kind of cut through in the way Ross Perot does, harder to do. And Jill Stein is not pulling anywhere near Gary Johnson is at this point. I do think the appeal, though, of Gary Johnson that I've heard from some Republicans is that they agree with sort of limited government. But as Sarah, you were saying, it's even some of the younger Republicans. They mm-hmm. they don't want you, you know, and it's a classic phrase. It's like, you know, I want the government out of my wallet and out of my bedroom. And I And I think that's a sentiment that I have heard from some folks. I mean, I interviewed a Hispanic Republican who feels very, very dissatisfied with Trump as a nominee. I asked him what he'd do, and he said he may vote libertarian. Johnson may not have done himself any favors, though, by picking, you know, Bill Weld as his running mate, who, you know... Former governor of Massachusetts. Right. And and relatively, you know, socially moderate, you might say. And not somebody who's maybe going to reassure a lot of social conservatives who are looking for an alternative to Trump. But he can raise money. That's why he's on the ticket. All right. That's the mail. Now it's time for Can't Let It Go, when we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Asma, you're up first. Oh, so what I can't let go? Uh, <laughs> I'm not really excited about that. <laughs> I was getting a little distracted. Um, so uh, as you all know, uh, I was quite intrigued by the British politics. Uh, thank you, by the way, to the uh, British listener who phoned in with a British accent. I remember that. He he was close to leaving his phone number on the end of that one. (laughs) Oh, he actually did. (laughs) Just for you. (laughs) Anyhow, moving on. I, uh, I, I wanted. I've not got to say. Now you're flustered. She's oh, blushing. she's blushing. I'm trying to think of what I was trying Asma, to say. Asma, you are a married woman. <laughs> I'm trying to focus. What was I trying to say? Oh, I'm going to talk about British politics. Can we talk about British politics? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. So, so anyhow, we all remember that the UK voted uh, to leave the European Union. This kind of put everything in Brexit. the UK. Yep. Brexit uh, in a bit of a tizzy. And long story short, David Cameron, their prime minister, left. They have a new prime minister, a lady by the name of Theresa May. Uh, but what I can't let go is who she chose as her foreign secretary. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he is a, a guy by the name of Boris Johnson. You're like, you I've might, heard that name recently. <laughs> you might recall that he has this blonde hairstyle. Hmm. Kind of reminds you a little bit as a character of Donald Trump, I, I would say, right? Stylistically a little bit. And he was very pro-Brexit. And he was super pro-Brexit. And he was going to be in line to be prime minister, but then he dropped out, right? But what I just can't let go is the guy who basically was the, the main man saying that the UK should leave the European Union is now going to be the main man doing negotiations and diplomacy for the UK. So good luck. 
It is so weird that for the last month or so, UK politics have been crazier than ours. I know. Right? Well, you know, House of Cards originated in the UK. So, you know. There's that. Yeah. There's that. Okay. Domenico, what can you not let go this week? So I can't let go of this story uh, from Lauren Chulgin, who works for WBEZ in Chicago, about delegates who didn't know that they had to pay their way. That was amazing. So good. Uh, And we have a clip from a woman that Lauren talked to who is a Trump delegate from Illinois. Because I I asked and I said, what's involved? And they said, well, you just get to vote, you know. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. (laughs) Yeah. They didn't say that vote cost you five grand. <laughs> oh. oh, but to be I fair, come on, her. Illinois to Ohio, it's a road trip. Yeah. Oh. I mean, oh. I live in the Midwest. Okay, so Ooh. maybe. But like, but maybe hotel for true. a week, food okay, for hotel, a week, right. that's a lot of money, so though. Maybe, but five grand. Maybe, okay, five so grand, maybe, maybe she's overstating the total cost, but it's $300 a night. Yeah. Okay, okay. that's 1200 okay. bucks for just the four nights. And if you have to go a couple days or so before that, you're for talking other committees 1500 and, yeah. almost $2,000. Okay. And then there's $600 for a flat fee for uh you know for transportation and for food. So there's a lot of extras that kind of go into that's at least we're getting to 2600 maybe 3000 bucks. Um you know, so for a lot of these folks who are new to the process, they didn't realize that they had to be uh you know paying their own way and that it would cost this much money. You know, in past years what you had was a lot of these folks were uh candidates or uh Party operatives. Elected, right, or elected people who have access to committee money and were able to sort of expense it, but not for a lot of these folks. That's not nice. So what, are they going to have like free car washes all over the country this weekend? So there have been some GoFundMes that actually haven't gone that well. Yeah, but it's a a reality that's, uh, I think a lot of people don't think about how much that would cost if you want to become politically involved like that. I'm going to go next. Um, Mine is just a shout out to the fine folks at a podcast called Reply All. They hit me up this week to talk about my thoughts on Dallas and what I saw there. I had a nice conversation with PJ Vote. Um, the episode went up Thursday morning. Anyways, thanks for that conversation. Uh, it was it was nice. I enjoyed it. Shout out to them. Okay, Sarah, what's yours? Okay, mine is uh, something our actually our lovely NPR interns wrote about very well this week, Ashley. And Alexander. They're the best. They're great. They really shout out to the turns. They are. They're helping us out a lot here behind the scenes. So, Um, but this is something I had no idea existed. But apparently, Donald Trump, like back in the early to mid two thousands, had a series called Trump. Yes, a radio series. A radio series. series. These were like minute long radio spots about all kinds of things about guns. About one night stands, hurricane hey, relief. I mean, everything. Do we have the clip? Wait, was he we advising have... people, well, or was just, he? Let's just. Do let's we have the cl- Do we have the clip about the about why husbands should do mm. chores? That's right. Okay. Let's just listen. Yes. The Apprentice theme, by the way. Although they're not the slackers they were in the past, American men still don't do their share when it comes to housework and childcare. Husbands do double or triple the family tasks that they used to, but they're not even close to equal with the wives. The wives. Besides the fact that you want to be really good guys, there's one other really good reason, men, that you might want to drag out the vacuum cleaner. Psychologists have found that the payoff for doing more chores seems to be more sex. If the husband's sitting on a couch while she's dusting and making dinner, that's not going to put her in the right mood. 
So, guys, I suggest setting the table or doing the wash. Maybe even start with the sheets in your bedroom. You know what? You'll be a lot happier, and the sex with your wife will be a lot better. And keep it to your wife. I'm Donald <laughs> Trump, and that's the real deal. That's not Good a bad family message. values. Why bad is he message. yelling? He was yelling. I just want to know how often Donald Trump washes sheets or vacuums. Come on. Yeah. Yep. But, but what he was, what was he like? He wasn't running for office. No, no, no. What no, was no. he trying it to was, do? He was just trying to market himself and make money off of it. Because like people listen to shock radio. And... So this was just basically 60 second spots that stations could buy from Trump. Yeah. And, you know, he got his name out there, made, probably made some money and gave him a chance to uh, share his feelings just, and views and, with the world. Know, why was he yelling the whole time? But he literally was yelling. Let's keep the brand going. All right. Cool. Well done. That's a wrap. And as always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. And please, please do us a favor and rate this show on iTunes if you like it. And find us on Twitter if you want to talk. Write us or email us a recording of you asking a question to nprpolitics at npr.org. And announcement. Tomorrow, tickets go on sale for our August live show in Chicago. Yes, live show. We'll be there August 19th in partnership with the great folks at WBEZ. Get yourself to livepodcast.wbez.org for tickets. Again, livepodcast.wbez.org, August 19th live show. Our podcast is produced by Brent Bachman with the amazing Barbara Sprunt, who we could not do it without. Shout out to Barbara. Love you. And our editors, Shirley Henry, Mathani Maturi, and Beth Donovan. We love them, too. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.